This is a crowd podcast. Corey Monteith's body is cold. By the time he's found in his hotel room, he's been dead for hours. It's pretty obvious what's happened. That's what the police think when they arrive, when they see what's there, in front of them. Two bottles of champagne, a spoon, a needle, traces of heroin. It's a classic drug overdose, right? But in those early hours, those first days of this becoming international news, something just doesn't add up. It's not what happened, but who it's happened to. Monteith is just 31. He's a superstar. He's Finn Hudson from TV smash hit Glee. These days, people say the show is cursed. Maybe it is, but we'll come back to that. No one sees this coming. Not to this show, not to this man. Monteith has everything. He's handsome, he's talented, he's met the girl of his dreams, Glee co-star Leah Michelle. So how has he ended up like this? Because let's be honest, when you hear the word junkie, you don't think about someone who looks like Corey Monteith. Dark hair, good skin, good teeth. Like the boy next door, if it's all gone right. Like the kid every parent wants. And that right there has always been part of his problem. Looks don't tell you what's going on underneath. Monteith auditions one time for the part of a junkie. The director says, You're not right for this. No one's going to believe someone as good-looking as you is addicted to heroin. Monteith doesn't fit the stereotype. But a junkie is exactly what he is. He's got himself clean before a few times, but Hollywood, life, just keeps sucking him back in. When Monteith's story goes public, people are shocked. He's been in and out of rehab twice by the age of 19. Only a few people know how bad it really was. To most of us, his death is unbelievable. It'll force people in Hollywood to have difficult conversations about addiction, about addicts, about stereotypes. He'd been doing so well this time too, determined to get clean and stay clean, feeling like he'd finally beaten it. But demons always catch up with you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, who people think you are. Long before he becomes Finn Hudson, Corey's life is in the gutter. He's a teenager and he's an addict. Of all the kids he grows up with, he's the last one you'd expect to end up like this. See, from the start, Corey's a gifted kid. He's a prodigy. At four, he can read like a 12-year-old. He's so far ahead of his classmates, he skips a grade. Mum knows he's going to be someone important, a doctor, the scientist who cures cancer. But there's one problem. Corey hates it. Maths, science, school, all of it. His parents aren't together long. He's seven when Dad leaves. Corey and his brother Sean live with their mother in Victoria, Canada. Dad's in the army, won't be in their lives for a long time. Growing up, Corey feels all kinds of things. Anger, sadness. He hates all those expectations, 
all those labels. Everyone else knows how his life will map out. Everyone except him. Corey? He has no idea what he wants to be. Given where he ends up, you might think his one special talent, his one saving grace in the bad times, is acting or singing. Maybe he dreamed of being a performer, dreamed of Hollywood from the start. But none of that's true. Not even close. High school is when things get really bad for Corey. Corey resents all those child genius labels and he rebels. Like any teenager, he doesn't want to be a nerd, he wants to be popular. He thinks being the bad kid will make him stand out from the crowd. He's 13 when he gets drunk for the first time. He skips class to drink and smoke weed with the older kids. Child prodigy? Problem child. He's put in special programs. He bounces from school to school, 16 in total. Let's not sugarcoat this. He's a little shit. And he's getting into more and more trouble. By the time he's 16, he's quit school. He's doing it all by this point. He's still smoking pot, but now he's also doing cocaine and shooting up. Whatever he can get his hands on. Speed, heroin. This is big. This is nasty. You don't play around with this sort of stuff. And it goes on. For years. For Corey, nothing else has meaning. The only thing he knows is that he loves that doped up feeling, that rush of adrenaline, that high. He'll pass out feeling like he's on top of the world. Monteith's first acting role, unofficially, starts here. He becomes an expert at hiding his addictions. Girls love him. By the time he leaves school, he's tall, dark and handsome, boyish good looks. He has plenty of girlfriends, though none of them ever see the real Corey. He doesn't let them. Guys love him too. He's charming, funny, one of the lads, not someone with dark secrets. He manages to convince his family too. Almost. His mum knows he's getting high. She's found him passed out on the sofa more times than she can count. But he tells her it's just a bit. Every so often, he'll get help. That's until the day he crosses a line. He steals from his own mum. Like any addict, the more desperate he gets, the worse it gets, the more expensive. Corey starts stealing whenever he can from mates, girlfriends, shops, and now his mum. He takes several hundred dollars from her purse. He'll pay it back. Even as he's doing it, he knows it's a step too far. Deep down, he hopes he gets caught. He's beginning to get tired of living like this, of wondering if he's going to die before his 20th birthday. It's a cry for help. And when he gets caught, his mum and his brother answer. They intervene. Give him a simple choice. Get clean and go to rehab. Or we'll phone the police. He's already been done once before. This is his final chance. Okay, decision time. A chance to turn his life around. That's what he tells himself. He's got no right to look as good as he does, despite all the drug abuse. It's as if none of it has touched him on the outside. But the boy who walks out of rehab is still a long way away from the big time. He does all sorts of jobs. He works at a coffee shop, 
Then he drives a school bus for a daycare centre. He quits that and drives taxis. Not many 19-year-old cab drivers around. Things finally click for him at Walmart, of all places. He works as a greeter. It's boring, for one thing. There's only so many different ways you can say, welcome to Walmart. One day, something dawns on him as he stands by those big doors. He works with a man called Joe. He's been a Walmart greeter for 15 years. That horrifies Monteith. Joe's a nice guy. Seems pretty smart. He just made some bad decisions along the way. Corey sees his future self, standing right there in front of him. And this is where the acting and singing starts. He joins a band, Bonnie June. He always liked messing around with the drums at school, but it was never serious. He had distractions back then. Now, he doesn't think he's anything special, but he loves the process. How long it takes to get things perfect, performing in front of a crowd. It's a feeling Corey's been searching for, for his whole life. Hey Hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Soon, Corey starts acting. He moves to Vancouver like all other Canadian actors starting out. He meets a casting director, Maureen Webb, and joins a program for troubled kids aimed at giving them a chance, achieving their potential through performing arts. Maureen gets a foot in the door for him. One of his first credits is in Final Destination 3, which is about people cheating death, and death eventually catching up to them. Like all of his early work, Monteith's role is minor, blink-and-you-miss-it kind of stuff. But even at this point in his life, it feels like he's already cheated death. The amount of drugs he's done, the age he's done them. It's a miracle he's still walking around. So he's determined to make this second chance worth it. He gets himself an agent, Elena. One day in 2008, she sees a casting call for a role which she says is perfect for Monteith. It's a TV show called Glee, a musical. That's different, she thinks. You don't see many of those these days. It's the description of the main character that hooks her in. Finn's a jock, a cool kid, but deep down, he's a misfit. Everyone knows what Finn should be, except Finn. He joins the Glee club because he loves to perform. That's social suicide at high school, but he does it anyway. Finn's endearing quality, the ad says, is his, quote, naive but not stupid sweetness. It has to be a contradiction, the heartthrob, the football star, but one who can play the underdog, 
a nice guy deep down, but one who occasionally says or does the wrong thing. Elena recognizes Finn instantly. It's Corey, and she convinces him to audition. The tape he sends to Glee, quite honestly, is ridiculous. He can't dance too well, and he's not that confident singing. Bit of an issue for a musical audition, you'd think? Well, he decides to play the drums to show his musical abilities. Small problem, though. He doesn't have a drum kit. He's left his band, and he's living paycheck to paycheck. So instead, he sets up a camera in the kitchen, arranges wine glasses, bottles and Tupperware boxes on the table. He sits down and plays the drums on them. No drumsticks either, by the way, he uses pencils for those. When show creator Ryan Murphy and casting director Robert Ulrich see his tape, they're about ready to call it a night. It's 2am. They've watched tape after tape of brilliant performers, people who've been singing and dancing all their lives. All fine in a lead role, they're all great. But Glee is all about going against the grain. That's what's going to make it a smash hit. Monteith's tape starts playing, and Murphy knows he's looking at Finn Hudson. It finishes. Murphy smiles. It's weird, he says. But I can write with weird. Monteith eventually does sing on tape. He chooses a song called I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore, and the studio invites him down to LA to audition in person. He can't afford plane tickets, so he drives from Vancouver to LA, singing Billy Joel songs, trying to pick the perfect one for his final audition. He picks one called Honesty. Makes sense, doesn't it? One of the people watching says Monteith doesn't have a Broadway voice. Should be a bad thing for a musical. But here, it's ideal. It's not supposed to be an insult. It's exactly what Glee is looking for. Corey's only just got back to his car when his mobile rings. He's got the part. He phones his mum, his brother, everyone. He tells them he's landed a role in a new TV show. Even then, he downplays it. It'll be a fun project, he says. A foot in the door, a chance to show people what he can do. It takes a while to sink in. At that point, he's never even seen a musical in person before. He buys tickets to see Rock of Ages before filming for Glee starts. Good move. He has no idea just how big this is going to be. Nobody does. Glee is like a moment in time. It turns Monteith and its unknown cast into superstars overnight. Millennials are coming of age and, like every generation, they're completely different to their parents. A few years earlier, and Glee is too shocking, too progressive. A few years later, it's probably too cheesy. It hits that perfect sweet spot. Glee deals with themes most shows wouldn't dream of going near. Abortion, domestic violence, teenage pregnancy, homosexuality, homophobia. But on top of it all is the music. In its opening season, eight million people tune in to watch each week this is before the era of streaming. Numbers like that make headlines. Glee is instantly one of the most popular shows of the decade. Famous artists fall over themselves to have their songs covered on the show. Rihanna, Lady Gaga, Madonna, Adele. People identify with Finn, flawed but likeable. He's the lead singer on Glee's most famous cover version. Even if you've never watched the show, you'll know it. 
journeys don't stop believing. Glee revives this dead old 80s rock anthem and gives it a noughties pop makeover. Finn leads a duet with his on-off love interest Rachel, played by Leah Michelle. A few months after playing drums on Tupperware, because he wasn't sure he had the voice for a musical, Monteith's voice is on a gold-certified song. There are rumours he's dating Taylor Swift. He appears on talk shows with screaming girls in the audience. Monteith is a story we all absolutely love, right? A complete unknown making the big time. What's more, Monteith starts telling people his actual story, because since that audition, he's about honesty now. I should be dead, he tells one magazine. I did terrible things, criminal things. Great, isn't it? The recovered addict, a man who's overcome his demons, found success beyond anything that should have been possible. Problem is, that's only half the story. Once Monteith's done explaining his awful past, interviews follow an alarmingly similar pattern. The questions veer away from drug abuse, from addictions, and to his newfound status as a heartthrob. What does it feel like to be one of the sexiest men alive? Are you worried you'll be typecast as a pretty boy? Are the rumours about you and Taylor true? Hollywood makes Corey Monteith, but it's also what breaks him. Away from the fame and the interviews and the magazine covers, he's struggling to keep those old demons at bay. He hates Hollywood. Full of phony people, he tells his friends. Every chance he gets, he goes back to Vancouver, which should be better, but turns out to be worse. Everywhere he goes, familiar faces, old habits. There's something else he says in that magazine piece. There are so many opportunities to do the next wrong thing. I just try and do the next right thing. Trouble is, sometimes the wrong thing's easier. Corey's spiralling down again. As Glee gets bigger and bigger, his problems get deeper and deeper. Now he's shooting up heroin again. He's just better at hiding it than before. Never high on set, never missing a beat when the cameras are rolling. There's only one person he can't hide it from. He wasn't dating Taylor Swift, but his on-screen girlfriend, Leah Michelle. Leah's smitten calls him the most beautiful man she's ever seen. And she intimidates him at first. She's unlike anyone he's ever met, an energy he's never felt before. That energy can get out of hand. Years later, some other stars on the show will accuse her of being difficult to work with, a bully. But she cares about him. When she sees what he's become, she calls the cast together for another intervention. It's March 2013. Corey misses the start of season four to go back to rehab. He wants so badly for this to be the last time. He tells Michelle, I just want to get better. He wants them to get married, have kids. And what happens? When he leaves rehab, it begins all over again. Corey Monteith's beaten his addictions. That's what they say in public. He hasn't but you know that by now. July the 13th should be like any other day. He's back in Vancouver, back where all those bad influences are. He's been out with friends, seems relaxed. 
His last tweet is a joke about a new movie with a funny title, Sharknado. At one point, he says he wonders what's next for him after Glee. But mainly, Monteith and his friends laugh and party all night. When he gets back to the Fairmont Pacific Rim Hotel, it's 2am. He takes the elevator up to the 21st floor. He doesn't plan to die there. He plans to do what he's done a million times before. Drink, get high, take the edge off it all. He goes through two bottles of champagne, he shoots up and he blacks out. It's ruled an accidental overdose. Stints in rehab often lead to a lower tolerance to drugs. Monteith's body simply couldn't keep up with the addict he used to be. That's the cold official line. The real stuff? Leah Michelle is in LA when she gets the call. When she hears the news, she drops the phone and screams. How do they cope on Glee? By opening season five with a tribute episode. It's called The Quarterback. It's about the death of Finn, but it's for Corey. Michelle cries when she reads the script. She cries again as she sings Bob Dylan's Make You Feel My Love. She does it in one take. The curse? That'll keep going. It'll take Naya Rivera, drowned in a lake in California, as she looks after her four-year-old son. Three members of the production crew die in a two-year spell. Another star, Mark Salling, is arrested for possessing child pornography. He commits suicide before he can be sentenced. On the show, they say Finn died too young, too soon, that he never reached his potential. Drugs are never mentioned. The show that pulled no punches avoids doing an episode about drug abuse, about addicts. They never explain how Finn dies. They don't have to. It's there for all of us to see. Finn, Corey. Even in death, he's still just the character everyone else wants him to be. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Nate Saunders and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we used the BBC Archives, Parade Magazine and Hollywood Reporter and watched various Corey Monteith interviews on ET Canada, The Ellen DeGeneres Show and with George Strombopoulos. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, go back and listen to our one on Brittany Murphy, who lived in a Hollywood of mirrors. And if you want a brand new podcast to listen to, why not try our Death of a Rockstar series and start with the ones on Amy Winehouse, Michael Jackson and Elvis. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. Network, a place where you belong.
Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.